Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Lira Lurch, Turkish currency plunges after the central bank boss is fired. Trust Tesla, Elon Musk denies his cars can spy on China. And fire fears, a blaze at chipmaker Renesos fuels supply shortage fears. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move and a jam-packed show for you, as always, filled with the very latest on pandemic-era trials and tribulations. Good news, though, on AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine. The U.S. trial results indicate an efficacy rate of 79% overall. And this is key, 100% efficacy against severe disease and hospitalization. Also vitally important, no mention of the safety concerns that triggered temporary halts across the EU last week. And that, of course, crucial in rebuilding confidence around the world where this vaccine is going to be in use. There's a less confident, more cautious feel, though, to global stocks today. U.S. stocks investors taking the lead, I think, from bond market investors and torn, therefore, about how much to worry about rising yields. For now, as you can see, they're coping. U.S. 10-year yields stable. After eight weeks of gains, we're below that 1.7% level, while the S&P 500 remains close to record highs. But of course, it's complicated. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers said this weekend that the U.S. faces the worst macroeconomic policy in 40 years. A bold statement, whether you agree or not. Now, lots of opportunity for Fed Chair Jay Powell to disagree this week. He speaks to Congress twice. In Europe, meanwhile, travel firms are underperforming as UK officials warn a potential extension of the foreign travel ban might be in play. Germany could also be about to extend lockdown measures too. And Japan is the underperformer when you take a look across the Asia session with the big car makers slipping after a fire at Japanese chipmaker Renesos escalated fears of chip shortages. We've got all the details on that, but as you can see, no shortage of news. Let's get to the drivers. The British Prime Minister is urging EU leaders to not block exports of AstraZeneca's vaccine supplies to the UK. Production delays threaten to slow the pace of vaccinations across the European Union ahead of a potential third wave of COVID-19. Fred Plankton joins us now. Fred, how likely is it that the EU steps in here and says, look, we're going to take stringent measures to restrict supplies? Either, Julia, I think it's becoming more and more likely. I mean, mm. if you listen to the tough talk that's especially coming from the head of the EU Commission, uh, from Ursula von der Leyen, she seems to be repeating those threats uh, more often than I've had her do so uh, or, or heard her do so in the past. She had an interview with the Funke Mediengruppe here uh, in Germany uh, leading into today where she said, look, the EU has the power to block any sort of export of vaccine made by AstraZeneca. And her clear message to AstraZeneca, she said, fulfill your contracts with the European Union before exporting vaccine to any anywhere else. Now, of course, that is a threat against AstraZeneca, a very direct threat against uh, AstraZeneca, of course. But you do see the United Kingdom, uh, for its part, taking that threat also very seriously. You just talked about Boris Johnson urging the EU not to take such measures. Apparently, Boris Johnson also wants to talk to several EU leaders or or leaders of EU uh, countries and try and convince them for the European Union to not do that, to not block any sort uh, of exports. Also, the defense minister uh, of uh, the United Kingdom also saying, listen, the world is watching. The EU 
EU, of course, is a bloc that prides itself on free trade, where free trade is very important to it. And so certainly blocking the export of vaccine does seem like something that runs counter uh, to a lot of the things that the European Union stands for. It was quite interesting because in her press conference last week, Ursula von der Leyen said there were over 300 times that uh, vaccine uh, exports were uh, asked for. And there was only one time that it was blocked. It was a bunch of ex- uh, a vaccine that was destined for Australia. Otherwise, they said that they've allowed all these vaccine exports. Now the European Union said, look, we could get a lot tougher. It's not necessarily something they say they want to do, but certainly with the situation here with vaccinations, the way it is right now on the continent, it certainly seems like something that is becoming ever more likely, Julia. And to your point, it flies in the face of everything they stand for. One of the key pillars not Mm. to take this kind of action over trade. I mean, they'd be the first people to criticize someone else doing this. The problem is everyone's desperate and they also have to message to their citizens. And Mm -hmm. we're expecting perhaps a tough message from the German authorities once again, the the risk that lockdowns are extended further, Fred. Extended further and and further toughen, and that's because mm. the Europe uh, and and Germany, of course, as well, is right in the midst of that third wave. And if you look at the scarcity of vaccine here on the European continent, in the European Union, I was just on the German official vaccination dashboard, and only four percent of the population have gotten two doses so far. And of course, AstraZeneca also saying that they're going to deliver less to the European Union than they had originally said in in their contract. So certainly a dire situation here right now with cases on the rise. There's several things that we expect could happen when Angela Merkel meets the state ministers here in Germany. One of the things could be a nighttime curfew in Germany. That's certainly something that we haven't seen in that form before. And then also expanded testing as well, but also some of the school openings that have happened here in Germany. That could be taken back in places where there is a high incidence of the novel coronavirus. So right now, European governments, the German government certainly not being any sort of exception there, saying they simply don't have enough vaccine to stave off this third wave of coronavirus infections. And therefore, the only measure they have at hand right now is further tightening of restrictions, further lockdowns, Julia. Yeah, it's tough. Fred Pikin, thank you so much for that update there. We'll watch that press conference later this hour. Now to Turkey, where the Turkish lira is plunging against the US dollar after President Erdogan fired the head of the country's central bank. This comes, of course, just days after the central bank surprised the market by raising interest rates more than expected. John Defterius joins us now. John, it's exactly what we discussed. I mean, a month ago, the president said, look, we're going to try and stabilize the lira. We're going to fight inflation. The conventional wisdom for that, of course, is that you raise rates. And the moment the central bank governor does that, it seems he gets fired. Yeah, that's the case, uh, Julia. It's almost like President Erdogan cannot uh, resist and and not fire a central banker. This is the third in two years, which is quite extraordinary. And and many, if you talk to anybody in the emerging markets, which I was working the phones today, uh, they say that the president's gone a bridge too far this time, a Bosphorus bridge too far, if you will, uh, because he's eroding the confidence in the currency and his recovery plan. As you suggested, he said, I'll douse inflation. I'll give the central bank independence. And he's made a huge U-turn in doing so. Let's take a look at the latest currency rate now. We've had some stability in the last two hours of trade, around 7.9 to the U.S. dollar. We went all the way down to 8.48 overnight with this drop of 15%. The record low was back in November when they had a shift in the cabinet with his son-in-law leaving as finance minister when it hit 8.58. So the bottom line here is this unconventional approach that Erdogan always believes in, that there's an interest rate lobby against Turkey. He likes to keep interest rates low, keep the growth high, and he still thinks he can control inflation. 
But the facts are very different, Julia. Uh, inflation in the last month is running at uh, 14%, and they're trying to bring it below 10. It becomes a political problem here if the average Turk and the business community that supported him for a dozen years plus uh, thinks that he's got this wrong strategy in place and he won't give it up. What is the fallout from this, John? As you mentioned, I mean, four central bank governors in five years risking losing the confidence now of the markets when they were hoping that we were finally getting to grips with some of the instability. You just mentioned there his son was finance minister for a, for a couple of years. At what point do people turn and say, you know what, we've lost faith in your handling? We can throw in the pandemic response here, too. Yeah, and there's a couple of different strategies being discussed here. Julie, if you're not going to use interest rates, as you well know, and you don't have deep Forex reserves to buy back your currency, uh, they have about $50 billion in cash, according to the central bank, and another $50 billion in gold, uh, you get desperate, right? So we've had talk in Turkey, and a lot of the sources I've been speaking to, that the president is even suggesting that jewelers, gold jewelers, deposit gold into the central bank to build up their reserves. That's how bad the situation has gotten. And to your point here, there's even discussions about capital controls as the only tool left, if that's the case. Uh, and go back to that son-in-law, uh, Barak al-Barak. He was the, uh, the son-in-law and the uh, finance minister for two years, right? Lost a lot of credibility when he made that move here. There's even discussions bringing him back into the cabinet. And between 2008 and 2019, two very credible representatives as deputy prime ministers managing the economy, respected in London and on Wall Street and global markets, uh, they're gone. And now you look and say, okay, what's next? And his central bank chief now is a party parliamentarian from the AK party, Julia, and he follows the same line as President Erdogan. And this has been going on off and on for the last two years, and still that strategy doesn't work. So many are starting to say, hey, what's going on? And does it spill over to other markets? We're not seeing that just yet, though, Julia. Yeah, time for a new strategy. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. All right, our next driver is literally being taken off the road. China's military banning Tesla cars from its complexes over concerns their cameras could be used for spying. That, according to reports. Claire Sebastian has more on this. Claire, great to have you with us. Elon Musk, Tesla's boss, coming forward and saying there is no way our cars would be used to spying because it would drive Tesla literally out of China. A stringent response on these accusations. Yeah, stringent and fast, uh, Julia. He was speaking uh, to a Chinese web conference on Saturday, the day after these reports surfaced, appealing essentially to sort of capitalist logic, saying, why on earth would we want to upset our business in such a key market? He said, this is a very strong incentive for us to be confidential with any information. He said, if we use cars for spying in China, we will get shut down. And I think, Julia, an acknowledgement that really tech and in particular data is now sort of a frontier when it comes to national security. He compared this to TikTok, the US government obviously trying to crack down uh, on TikTok last year. He said uh, that, you know, if the, the United States wanted to shut down TikTok, luckily it did not happen. He said lessons should be learned from that. So he's trying to sort of set Tesla apart from this, but also acknowledging that this could be potentially a major issue for him in this critical market. I should say though that CNN hasn't independently verified these reports that either Tesla cars uh, are being banned from military compounds or that the Chinese uh, are trying to restrict their use by government agencies and state-owned companies. The Foreign Affairs Ministry has not responded to a request for comment. But I think the fact that Elon Musk has come out and addressed this suggests there is some credibility behind this. And again, very critical to watch going forward because China is such a key market for Tesla and because of the state of US-China relations right now, Julian. 
I was about to say, actually, he's managed to navigate what's been an administration four years full of tensions over technology between the United States and China. And yet he managed to build the gigafactory there. He's distributing Teslas in China. This could be a huge, a huge problem for, for Tesla if it can't be resolved. Right. I think, I mean, look at the stock price since they started uh, delivering cars in China, which was the end of, uh, of 2019. It's up some 700 percent, mm. even with the 25 percent drop from its its recent record high. That really is what has been powering earnings uh, and the stock going forward. Not only the fact that they are now at a sort of quarter million a year capacity with the Chinese gigafactory, uh, but also that Elon Musk has called this a template for future growth. They're learning lessons uh, from what they've done in China. Analysts, Julia Wedbush, say that they, they are looking, they're on track uh, to be producing 40% of all units sold per year uh, in China. And Tesla, as you say, has been something of an outlier in terms of the access they got in China. Mm. They were the first car company uh, to be allowed to, to build a factory without a local partner. So they are hugely invested in that market and, and critical going forward. This, of course, we shouldn't forget the biggest electric vehicle market in the world. They can't afford uh, to let this spiral into a bigger problem. Yeah, the quote's really clear. If Tesla used cars to spy in China or anywhere, we will get shut down. The end. Watch this space. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. To Japan now. A fire at an important microchip factory stoking concerns over the ongoing global semiconductor shortage. Selena Wang joins us live from Tokyo. Selena, just talk to us about what happened with this fire. And do you have any sense yet of how long production of chips might be impacted? Well, Julia, for some context here, Renesis is one of the world's largest chip makers for the auto industry. This fire broke out on Friday at the plant in Naka City, which is north of Tokyo. The company said that there have been no casualties, but there is equipment damage that was reported. Now, the CEO said they aim to restart production within a month, but that this could have a major impact on the global chip industry for automakers. You already have car makers like Toyota, Nissan, and Honda scrambling to assess the impact that this is going to have on their production. And really, this just couldn't come at a worse time for car makers. They are already struggling because of this global chip-making crunch. These car makers, many of them have already had to scale back production because of these chip-making shortages, these chip shortages, which really stem from two issues. One is the rebound in car demand that has come back much faster than expected, compounded by the increased demand of consumer electronics during the lockdown. So really, an exacerbation of an already very severe problem, Julia. It is. And do we know how reliant they are on Renesos? Because as you quite rightly mentioned, this would be a problem in of itself, but it wouldn't be such a huge problem if there weren't a global shortage of chips at this moment. So even if they are diversified, the problem is, can some of these car makers like Toyota and Nissan get these chips from elsewhere? That's exactly right. And it's not just an issue for these Japan car makers. It is also a global problem. Mm. Japanese bank Nomura estimates that a qu about a quarter of the capacity coming out of that production plant that was damaged by the fire is for these global automakers. And these chips are just so incredibly important for cars. And the smarter that cars get, the more chips that they need. These chips that 
companies like Renesis make are used for monitoring uh, entertainment systems, for monitoring engine performance, for automatic windows, for sensors in parking. And when it comes to Renesis in particular, they have had experience dealing with supply chain disruptions in the past. In fact, just last month, there was an earthquake here in Japan that led to a disruption for several days for its plants. And back in 2011, they had several months of production getting halted because of the Fukushima earthquake tsunami disaster. That actually led Renesis to make changes to diversify its supply. But in this particular instance, the CEO said they can't simply just shift production to a different facility because the entire industry is dealing with a lack of spare capacity. So really bad timing here all around. Julia? Yeah, terrible timing for the industry. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The European Union set to announce sanctions on several officials linked to last month's coup in Myanmar. The EU's foreign policy chief said measures are being imposed on 11 individuals involved in the coup and the brutal repression of demonstrators. Meanwhile, the BBC says one of its journalists in Myanmar has been released after being detained by unidentified men on Friday. A Chinese court says it will hand down a ruling against a detained Canadian man, quote, at a later date. Michael Korvig went on trial behind closed doors earlier today. He's one of two Canadians charged with espionage. International diplomats were denied access to the trial. The court says the proceedings were closed because the case involves, quote, state secrets. More than 18,000 people have been evacuated from their homes as intense flooding hits Australia's most populous state. Roads and houses in New South Wales are completely submerged after several days of heavy rain. Many of the homes are in areas ravaged by wildfires over the last two years. All right, so to come here on First Move, one in four COVID-19 deaths worldwide now occur in Brazil. ICUs are at capacity. Hospitals say they only have enough supplies for a few more days. We speak to the governor of Sao Paulo to understand. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are firming pre-market as we begin the last full trading week of the first quarter of the year. Tech stocks set for the biggest gains as bond yields steady too. As you can see, a quarter, three quarters of a percent their gains for the Nasdaq pre-market. Banking majors, though, looking softer, building on Friday's losses. Banks under pressure after the Federal Reserve pulled pandemic-era support that the broader industry was hoping to see extended. We've also seen some M&A action this morning. Two shares of the Kansas City Southern Railroad are on track for a rally. It's accepted a $25 billion takeover offer from the Canadian Pacific Railway, a deal that would create a rail giant connecting the US, Canada and Mexico. A vote of confidence, it seems, in the future of North American trade. Okay, to Brazil now, where the coronavirus crisis is getting worse. A CNN analysis found that nearly a quarter of global COVID-19 deaths over the past two weeks occurred in Brazil. Intensive care units across the country are nearing capacity as cases of a highly contagious variant surge. Matt Rivers joins us now. Matt, it's a perfect storm too with vaccine shortages in play as well. Just talk us through what you're seeing. I mean, it's just a dire situation right now, Julia. The latest CNN analysis uh, from yesterday evening shows that nearly every single state here in Brazil 
is seeing ICU capacities at or above 80%. 14 of 26 states here in Brazil have ICU capacities of 90% or higher. That means that the healthcare systems in those states, if they haven't collapsed already, they are at imminent risk of doing so. Meanwhile, we're hearing about critical medicine shortages, uh, medicines critical to intubating patients. The situation is really bad right now, Julia. And what we're seeing is people dying here in Brazil, not only the elderly, but the young as well. There's a sense of desperation outside this Rio de Janeiro clinic. She didn't get one, says Silvia Silva Santos, walking out. My 77-year-old mom can't get a vaccine. One of many that showed up that day waiting for vaccines that don't exist. This woman says this is a disgrace. People waiting all day and night. Who knows if there will be a vaccine tomorrow? And Brazil's COVID-19 situation has never been worse. Daily case and death records are the norm. ICUs nationwide are full and health systems are failing. And despite health officials saying the program has been a success, vaccine deliveries are well behind schedule, months away from making a big impact, experts say. No supply means no shots today back at the clinic. So all these 70-plus-year-olds behind me have been told there are no more vaccines left in this clinic. The weather app says it feels like it's about 100 degrees outside, and yet they're not willing to leave because they're scared that if they do leave and some vaccines show up, they won't be here to get them. They wait because they're scared of a disease that preys on the elderly. But in Brazil lately, it's not just the old who are dying. Maria de Peña da Silva Siqueira says she wasn't just a daughter, she was a friend. It was everything to me. Her daughter, Graciani, was only 28 when she died last year of COVID. Her four-year-old son lives with grandma now, their family forever missing a member. She says they called me that morning and said she was dead, and I went into shock. The virus didn't let us say goodbye. For the last two months, multiple doctors across Brazil have told us they've seen more young people dying of COVID than before. In Brazil's largest state of Sao Paulo, officials say 60% of ICU patients are now between 30 and 50, something Rio de Janeiro doctor Pedro Archer is seeing too. He says we have patients now in their 30s and their 20s, severe intubated patients. I think maybe the virus has mutated, become a new strain. There are new COVID variants here, but experts say there's no proof yet they're more lethal for the young. To explain it, epidemiologists point more to scenes like this. Social gatherings. This one, a party from this month, ramped up during the New Year and Carnival holidays. Younger people simply exposed more. In another video given to CNN this weekend, dozens can be seen streaming out of a party broken up by police. And that's just the illegal stuff. Rio, bars and restaurants can be open till nine, many taking full advantage. It is crowded out here and it just doesn't feel like you might expect given that Brazil keeps setting new records for cases and deaths. Where it does feel like that is this cemetery in Rio de Janeiro. Both young and old end up here. Today, it's a funeral for a 52-year-old COVID victim. There's a lot of services lined up this afternoon. So the family only gets 15 minutes to mourn.
And Julia, we know that the ultimate way out of this situation for Brazil will, of course, be vaccines. But the program here remains painfully slow. We did get some good news within the last week. We know that Brazil has signed agreements to receive up to 138 million doses of the Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson vaccines in total. But what critics are saying is, well, why were those agreements just signed now? Why were they not signed much earlier? They're signed at a time when so many ICUs across this country are basically collapsing. Had those agreements been signed earlier, those doses would already be in the country. For example, the health ministry actually turned down an opportunity to secure up to 70 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine going all the way to last August. They still defend that decision because they say there were contractual issues there. But the people here in Brazil, ordinary Brazilians, would look at that decision and go, wait, you could have had vaccines last year and you waited until now to sign an agreement with that same company? It is incredulous, uh, or as many people are incredulous when they look at that, Julia, but it just highlights the desperate situation right now facing this country. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And many of the trials, of course, carried out there as well. So access to these drugs should have come sooner. Matt Rivers, thank yeah. you so much for that. All right, stay with First Move because we're going to continue the conversation with the governor of Brazil's most populous and wealthiest state, São Paulo. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday and tech is well and truly in the lead after last week's losses of over half a percent. We're up more than that if we can hold those gains. Tesla helping rev up the S&P and the Nasdaq. Influential ETF manager Kathy Wood of ARK Innovation fame raising her Tesla price target to an astounding $3,000 a share by 2025, driven by optimism over self driving vehicles. Remember, Ark always say this is not a car company. This is a tech company. Tesla still lower in 2021, but up over 660 percent over the past year. Now, AstraZeneca shares also higher in UK trade too. late stage US trial data showing a strong efficacy rate for its COVID vaccine and no mention of the blood clotting concerns that triggered a temporary halt to EU vaccinations in recent days. Okay, we return now to Brazil and the state of Sao Paulo, where schools, shops and businesses have been shut since early March. Its hospitals are on the brink of collapse. Authorities predict they will run out of intubation drugs within a week. As the crisis spirals out of control, local officials are demanding more action from the federal government. Last week, two mayors from across the country sent a letter to the president demanding immediate action to provide supplies and medicines. And joining us now is Joao Doria. He's the governor of Sao Paulo. Governor, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us at such a busy time. I want to start by asking you about the healthcare system. It sounds incredibly desperate. How close to collapse are you? Julia, thanks for having me. Uh, we are in one of those tragic moments in history when millions of people pay a high price for having an unprepared and psychopathic leader in charge of a nation. Since the beginning of the pandemic in Brazil, 295,000 Brazilians have died. Much of these deaths could have been prevented if President Jair Bolsonaro had acted with the responsibility that the position gives him. Brazil is a wonderful country, Julia, with happy, hardworking people who struggle to live we have the best vaccination network in the world. 
which covers the entire territory despite the country's continental dimensions. Our reality today could be much less sad. But the President Bolsonaro turned his back uh, on life by making a sequence of unbelievable mistakes. The biggest one was having entered into a political dispute with the governors who are trying to protect the population. I understand, First, he said Governor. it was just a little cold, Julia. Then uh, he promoted gatherings in and made fun of the use of masks, setting a terrible example for the population in Brazil. I understand, Governor. Just talk to me about the reality, as you mentioned. What is the reality in your your healthcare system at this moment? What do we need to understand? Uh, Julia, uh, we are in the collapse at this moment. Uh, I face at this moment the biggest challenge of my life. As governor of the largest state of the country, Sao Paulo, I had to restructure the health system in record time and look for solutions to mitigate the economic crisis that hit the country. The situation is, is in a collapse right now in Brazil. We have already uh, tripled the number of uh, ICU beds, and uh, this month we will open 12 field hospitals in the state of Sao Paulo in the face of the difficulties. I didn't sit with my arms crossed. In Sao Paulo, as you know, is the biggest state in, in Brazil. We mobilized society and obtained almost two billion uh, reais, more than 500 million US dollars in donations from the private sector. But I have to ask you, Julia, what President Bolsonaro is doing for us in Brazil? Nothing at this moment, nothing. Uh, we are uh, isolated in the world, trying, trying to help people uh, to get life. You've also battled over restrictions and lockdown measures. I know you've announced varying degrees of phases of restrictions. Governor, is total lockdown at this point really the answer for your state, never mind the rest of the country? Is this something that you need to consider and are considering? Uh, we are working hard on that. We created a plan called Sao Paulo Plan, uh, Julia, uh, here in Sao Paulo State, which accesses various circumstances to ensure that we can gradually open up trade and other sectors of the economy. But it will also require going back if we have indications that could put people's lives at risk. And we are doing this right now. We are in the emer emergency uh, phase. Brazil needs uh, peace. Brazil needs uh, vaccines. Brazil needs uh, leadership. This is a terrible crisis uh, that we are uh, living at this moment uh, down here. Governor, are more restrictions in your state necessary, further restrictions, and how long do you anticipate them continuing? Well, we have restrictions until the end of this month, and we are studying if we need to uh, uh, go uh, uh, away with these restrictions right now in Sao Paulo State. We have a committee with 21 uh, doctors uh, supporting uh, all decisions of the government of Sao Paulo. Uh, we have a, today, in this afternoon, uh, right now is the morning time here in Sao Paulo. This afternoon we have a new meeting with these doctors to decide what we'll do 
uh, during the next week here in Sao Paulo, Brazil. You also criticized President Bolsonaro for his behavior, whether it's with regards to masks or, masks or, or lockdowns. Um, do you think in the current situation, a full lockdown in Brazil is required? And do you believe that Brazilians will accept it? Do Brazilians accept the importance of safety measures, lockdown measures for the good of protecting lives and protecting the healthcare system? Julia, unfortunately, we have 30% of the Brazilian population supporting uh, President Bolsonaro. That's incredible, but that's, that's the truth. But we have 70% of the Brazilian population uh, going on the same way uh, of the governors, with restrictions, uh, with uh, the obligation to use masks and to uh, provide uh, support, vaccines, and to promote uh, isolation in our uh, territories. And uh, we will still go on this way, but against uh, President Bolsonaro. That's an incredible situation, Julia. Uh, we have to fight against two viruses here in Brazil, the coronavirus and the Bolsonaro virus. There's also a lack of vaccine supplies. What are you telling the people in your state about when they may receive a vaccine? Because we've shown pictures of people queuing up hoping to get a vaccine and then being disappointed at the end of the day. When do you think you can get your people vaccinated, Governor? Uh, good point, Julia. Uh, today, the vaccine that we have in Brazil, 90% uh, of the vaccines that we have uh, is produced by Institute Butantan here in Sao Paulo, which is linked to the government of Sao Paulo. Is basically the only one available at this moment. Uh, by the end of the August, we will uh, have made 100 million vaccines available across the country. Uh, this gives us pride, but it's still not enough. We need more vaccines. The Butantan vaccine is only uh, being produced here. And uh, thanks to the partnership with the Chinese laboratory Sinovac, signed by the government of Sao Paulo uh, last year, to exchange technology in the, de in the development of vaccines. But uh, the Brazilian government just now in March, Julia, is started to buy vaccines. That's incredible. We started, the Sao Paulo state started to do that in April last year. And the Brazilian government is start now in March. That's terrible. President Bolsonaro said on Sunday, Governor, that only God could remove him from his position before the end of his term. As you just said, 30% of Brazilians still support him, but 70% don't. Are lawmakers ready? Are you ready to take the steps required to perhaps remove President Bolsonaro if he doesn't change tack and take a different strategy for the health of Brazil, for the health of the people? Well, uh, Julia, uh, it's a very difficult moment as uh, you said, uh, we have Bolsonaro as a president until the end of 22, and uh, we have to support uh, the biggest crisis, uh, health crisis in our history at this moment here in Brazil, fighting against uh, someone who is against the health, against the people in Brazil, and uh, just governors and uh, mayors are supporting uh, the people 
Brazil needs peace right now to combat the terrible crisis. Leaders must be united to save lives. That's the point. Should the president be removed, Governor? This is, Julia, this is, uh, this is a Congress decision, not uh, I agree. Uh, from governor's decision. I agree. That's the, the decision of the Congress of Brazil. Should the Congress be discussing this? Uh, well, right now, they are uh, not putting this on the agenda of the Congress, unfortunately. Governor, what's your message to the people of Brazil, to those people that are still going out, that are not wearing masks, that are being caught at parties? We all understand that people don't want to be restricted. What's your message to those people? Please keep hope. Use masks. Uh, uh, follow, follow the sanitary uh, protocols. Uh, be away from the streets, from parks, and stay at home use masks and pray. That's the point and pray for the life. Yeah, stay safe. Sir, we wish you well and our hearts are with all those in Brazil that are suffering. The governor of Sao Paulo there, Joao Doria. All right, after the break, a billion dollar valuation. How did Skydio take off? The CEO of the Tech Unicorn joins us next. Welcome back to First Move. We've all been wowed by breathtaking drone video, but often a drone is reliant on the skills of the human operator. For my next guest, it's all about drones that fly themselves. At the tech unicorn Skydio, the sky's the limit when it comes to its customer base, from skateboarders to firefighters and even bridge inspectors. No surprise that there's plenty of investment too, but what might surprise you among the blue chips is the NBA star Kevin Durant. I kid you not, Adam Bree is the CEO and co-founder of Skydio. He's also on the Drone Advisory Committee of the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration. Adam, fantastic to have you on the show. Just explain what it is about your technology that makes your drones unique. So we started the company because we believe that drones have enormous potential across a lot of different industries and applications. But being able to trust the drone to fly itself is really a key foundational technology to unlock the most useful, interesting applications. Um, so what makes our drones special is that they can fly themselves. So they have cameras that see in every direction. They have a really powerful computer and they're running our software, which gives them the ability to map and understand the world around them, predict into the future and make intelligent decisions. I mean, you were a pilot and part of the game plan here for your drones, I read, was that you wanted to build them with capabilities that were better than the best pilots in the world. They were a better replacement for pilots being able to do these jobs. And I mean, we gave a sense of some of the range of where your drones are being used, but it's from emergency responders, uh, buildings. Just give us a sense of where these drones are being used currently around the world today and how. So I, as you mentioned, I mean, I grew up flying radio controlled airplanes, which were kind of the predecessors to drones. And a big part of the motivation for Skydio was trying to do things beyond the capabilities of the best pilots in the world. But the key really, I think, is making these things more scalable. So it's less about replacing the pilot and it's more about making it so that a single operator can deploy one or five or in the future, many, many drones and have them perform a useful task. So we have customers who are using our drones to capture amazing video, the things essentially like a film crew that fits in your backpack. We have customers that are inspecting critical infra infrastructure, so bridges, cell towers, buildings that are under construction. 
Uh, we have first responder agencies that are using our drones to, to get situational awareness in critical danger situations. They don't have to put a person in harm's way. Um, and the most exciting thing for me is I think we're still just scratching the surface of what's possible. The industry is really in its infancy. And I think a lot of the most exciting stuff is still to come. Fast forward five years, what's possible, Adam? Um, so our goal is really to make drones become like basic infrastructure, tools that are always available, that you don't have to actually physically touch it or interact with it in order to have it do something useful for you. Um, and that's kind of what we're incrementally building towards. So having them be able to fly themselves is kind of the starting point, but then connecting them to the internet, being able to dispatch them through the internet, control them through the cloud is, is the next step. And I think that's really <laughs> what we're gonna see happen over the next five years in the industry. Talk to me about the data as well, because I know you have contracts with the Department of Defense as well. How much data capacity do these drones have to collect and how are you protecting the data that's collected? So the, the core capability of our system is essentially a flying camera. So you can think of it as an image sensor that you can put anywhere you want in three dimensional space. And as you can see with our customer base, that's a very general capability that applies mm -hmm. across a number of different industries and applications. And as you say, the, the key output from that is the data. Um, and the security and integrity of the data is, is absolutely critical. Part of what's happened, I think, over the last few years is people have realized that these things that started off looking like consumer toys are actually incredibly powerful tools. And that's something that we take very seriously as a company. So the starting point for us is that the data coming back to our servers is purely on an opt-in basis for our customers. So uh, by default, we don't get the data back and we only get it back if the customer explicitly wants us to. And once we do, we, we take the security of that very seriously. There's also been um, sort of an issue with some Silicon Valley employees seeing their companies working for government contracts. I mean, a great example, I guess, Customs and, and Border Patrol. Adam, how do you feel about the use of these drones, particularly in these government contracts, and, and the stance that you take versus some of those in Silicon Valley that say, you look, we're, we're simply not willing to work with the government and on government contracts? Because they're lucrative, but there's a cost. So, you know, I think it's a really important discussion you know, my perspective and our perspective as a company is that these are, you know, law enforcement, Customs and Border Patrol, the military. I mean, these are all institutions that we have a stake in and, and ultimately we all benefit from. And the work that they do is difficult. Um, the stakes are high. Nobody's ever going to get it perfect. And there are tragic examples when things go wrong. And I think that the, you know, that that sort of raises the stakes for technology technology companies that engage but but ultimately I think it's it's really important work to be doing and, and it's a discussion that you know we think should be open to the public so we've published a set of principles as a company for how we think about engaging with government agencies um, we've we've published a specific set of principles for for public safety and law enforcement about you know what we think it takes to set up a, a successful program and you know in, in public safety in particular I think the most successful drone programs are the ones that have the most community support. And we see a lot of our customers doing a lot of work to engage the community, talk to them about the work that they're doing with drones, talk to them about the benefits and and taking real steps to to enforce, you know, make sure that that their drone programs are respecting civil liberties um, and and providing a net benefit to their their communities. Which makes sense to me. Um, 
talk to me about cost. And also, I read that DJI, the Chinese company, has around 70 to 80 percent market share in the United States. I mean, that's got to be at the core of the current battles between China and the United States, too. So if anything were to happen to restrict them, how quickly could you scale up? And what kind of market share do you think you could take in the coming years in the United States alone? Never mind anywhere else. So the the real dynamic that I think is happening in the market is this transition from manual to autonomous. And right. DJI has been phenomenally successful building manually flown drones that I think have have really set the foundation for the industry and in a lot of cases proven the value that drones can provide. So we're at this really interesting point where I think a lot of people, a lot of customers have kind of used manually flown drones to explore what's possible. They've seen the value, but now they're looking for something that's easier and faster to deploy and, and ultimately more scalable and more powerful. And that's really what we're focused on as a company. And, you know, I think this is an opportunity. We've seen this play out before in other industries. So one of the analogies we use is the transition from kind of the command prompt in the early days of the PC industry, where you had to be an right. expert programmer to use a computer, to the graphical user interface with the Mac and Windows that really opened up this whole software-defined world. Um, so, you know, this is an opportunity where we've seen US technology companies take the lead before. And certainly that's our, our goal as a company. Yes, something that doesn't have to be operated uh, manually. You can uh, get it to do the work itself. Adam, great to have you on the show. Keep in touch, please, and we'll track your progress. The CEO and the co-founder of Skydio. Great to chat to you today. Thank you. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move with a look at the early action on Wall Street. Tech bouncing back as bond yields ease, as you can see, as a result financials and energy stocks seeing the most pressure. What about the crypto space? Bitcoin, a touch softer, but we're still sitting near that record $60,000 per Bitcoin level hit earlier this month. What about Ethereum too? Now, this is the blockchain that supports the non-fungible token or NFT craze that we've been covering here on First Move. That's a little touch softer. We can show you that as well. Time magazine or Time jumping on the NFT bandwagon, announcing today that it will auction off three NFTs Two of those, its most notable covers, plus a specially designed cover, is Fiat Dead, as in the Fiat government-issued currency. The auction concludes later this week. Some big questions being asked. The cryptos are going to love that. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.